0: My price target on Bitcoin is over $2 million of Bitcoin. If you are worried today of $5,000 moves in Bitcoin, I don't need to talk to you. You're too stupid for me to talk to because $5,000 in a $2, $2 million context, it is, it's not even an order of magnitude right like it's just you guys need to understand that this is the most beautiful asset ever invented by man to store value over time and space
1: this is the blue-collar bitcoin podcast a show where average joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century we talk bitcoin We talk finance, and we talk shit.
2: Welcome back to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Today we have on returning guest Greg Foss. As you can tell from the intro, he was fired up. We were fortunate enough to have him on at an opportune time for him to help us understand this ever grand debacle in China. There's a few sections that can be difficult to follow, so I just want to break a few things down really quick before we get started. When he says that Evergrande bonds are more important than the stock price, it's important to understand that in the case of bankruptcy, bondholders are paid what they're owed before equity holders get anything. So what he's essentially getting at is if these bonds are losing value substantially, then you can understand that the stock price, the stock itself is basically worthless. He also hits on the point that Chinese markets are not as mature as US markets. Therefore, there may not be buyers as these bonds fall below junk status. Uh, And that has to do with legal structures in China being more opaque and people not willing to risk money because they are less sure of the legal ability to recoup that money. When he talks about bond math, things can get really confusing. It's very counterintuitive to understand how bonds work. Uh, So basically, when he's saying a a 700 basis point increase in reduction of the value of a bond that is the value of a bond in a secondary market it's important to understand that bonds have a face value say $100 and they also have a coupon rate which is the percentage you're paid on a yearly basis for that $100 so if the company is reissuing another bond at say 8% instead of the original 6% coupon people naturally want to own that 8% coupon. They would prefer to have that because obviously they're going to make more money with it. The problem is, is that that 6% coupon is still in the open market being traded. So logically people are going to prefer the 8% and they're going to sell their 6% bond in order to buy the 8% bond. What that causes in that market is the value, the face value of that 6% bond to diminish. And the bond math that he's talking about has to do with that. It's basically the math that helps you figure out how much this first bond has diminished in value versus the second one in the secondary market. Just as you would prefer to put your money in a bank account making 8% instead of 5%, the market demands a higher interest rate to compensate for higher perceived risk. The market will prefer to collect the higher interest rate of the new issued bonds therefore diminishing the value of the original bond counterintuitive but important to understand in the context of how bonds work and this conversation dan and i really enjoyed this conversation with greg we really hope to have him on again soon we hope you enjoy this episode
1: All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Greg Foss, take two. How are you? So
0: great to be back, fellas. Uh, I'm doing okay. It's uh, interesting times in the markets, is it not?
2: yeah we, we were just talking earlier today about how this is just perfect timing to have Foss the boss back on to, to bend your ear about evergrand and, and uh, you know take every bit of, every bit of what you know about it out of you, and even more than that, hopefully.
1: Yeah, Have you? Pleasure. You've been on every single podcast known to man recently. You get hit. I'm assuming that if you haven't already, you're going to be coveted this week to, for your perspective on this. I would think because we,
0: I, uh, I, I, you guys are the leader of the pack, which is great. But I have one, two, three. I have four podcasts tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> yeah,
2: you, you yeah, push we them were, all back for us of course right I, you, you, yeah. everything
0: just aligned properly and then i have Perfect. marty bent on thursday which i love marty bent so i'm not trying to rank oh. them in order of uh uh favorite to ever but um you know what's neat is uh, you get known as somebody who understands how credit markets work and uh yeah when something like Everground happens um all i can rely on is my experience i can't tell you exactly how the playbook will unfold but i uh, have yeah. uh, my suspicions
1: yeah, we were pumped last night. We were like, we already had this set up before this event happened. And we were like, okay. oh, man, we got lucky. We slotted in there. I think it's been happening. It's been a bit of,
0: you know what I'll tell you guys? It's been a bit of a, um, a slow motion car wreck, right? The market has been telling you this is gonna is happening. It's funny. You just never know what the absolute catalyst is. No. Guy, It's so funny that people think that the stock, for example, you should still look at the stock. Even though the bonds are trading at under 25 cents on the dollar, people are still looking at the stock as if the stock knows something. Let me assure you, the stock knows zero. In fact, it knows less than zero because the stock is nothing more than a deep out of the money option on the potential of the Chinese Communist Party to engineer some sort of rescue but I will also say this, it would be highly unlikely, in my opinion, that the rescue would, in, would include any sort of recovery value for the equity. That's just not what the Chinese are, uh, you know, if, if I tried to understand their culture, I just, I find it hard to believe that the equity has any understanding of the true risks that they are uh Incurring now, but it's still because the equity you can punch in a ticker and you can get a quote on the equity. You know, it's what every single uh, pundit on the street refers to right now is oh well, Evergrande equity was down ten percent. Guess what? You know that means nothing. It should be it should be way lower, or the bonds should be higher. But I think the bonds are priced correctly. Therefore, I think that the equity is way too high.
2: When you when you said that you, you said that this was kind of priced in a stat that I found today was that junk bonds in China started out 2021 at 7.5% yeah. on average. Okay. And right now, as we're speaking, um, we're looking 14. at 14%. Yeah, Which is so, exactly what you're talking about. That's the pricing in of the market. A little and bit. So, so
0: don't forget the way I understand it. And, and there's two things to understand about how market, um, functions. Firstly. The most beautiful thing about the U.S. high-yield market is that there's a buyer below the high-yield market called the distressed asset buyer. So guys like Oaktree, okay, Howard Marks out in, in uh, California, has made an entire career of a distressed asset class that is below the high-yield asset class. The two things about the Chinese market that I believe to be the case... Is firstly, it's highly dominated by property firms to begin with. So the high yield market is, you know, Evergrande may, I think, account for almost fifteen or more percent of the entire high yield market in in China. But then the second thing is, I it doesn't appear to me that there's a natural buyer of the distressed high yield. When something falls out of high yield, going concern type of uh, investment into something that needs to be restructured or high yield, there's a very well developed buyer base in North America, primarily in the US that focuses on that. I don't believe that buyer base exists in China. Therefore, when things fall out of favor in the high yield market, they tend to cascade down a lot more quickly. Um, And that's important to understand for two reasons. One, uh, these distressed buyers need to be at least as comfortable in the courtroom as they are in the financial markets, meaning they have to understand that their ability to recapture value largely depends on their ability to force or not, or to coerce or to stick handle a restructuring through the court system in the United States. I don't know how the court system works in China, nor do I'm certain I even want to try. So there's a lot of um, market mechanics that you cannot transpose from the U.S. market over to the uh, Chinese market. But let's just do some quick math, Josh, on that um, 700 basis points or 7% increase in the yield in the high yield market. Um, let's assume that the average maturity on that debt is a five-year bond, and that means that the duration—it's a—it's a calculation. It's a bond calculation. It's the uh, first derivative of uh, of a bond price is called the duration. Uh, let's assume that's a four. Okay, that's seven hundred basis points increase on a four duration bond equates to the price of the bond falling by approximately 25%.
1: Mm. Man, oh man, that's
0: a big ass hickey, right? If your yield at the beginning was 7%, you've just lost four years of coupons to make up for the price decline in the overall market And I know I'm getting a little bit bond mathy and a little geeky about this, but just imagine this, you've lost four years of return right now, if things even just return to normal. Um, One of the reasons it's fallen so quickly, again, the lack of a distressed buyer base. Uh, The other is because of the contagion, because one property developer leaks into another property developer, which is a sign of it. Uh, you know uh undeveloped high yield market one that is uh you know dominated by a particular industry uh in in the case of China was the um real estate or the property development industry so
1: it seemed from some research i did today it seems like china has an unprecedented amount of real estate investment like one of the stats i heard was that 70% of net worth for households is in real estate and so there's this like is is that accurate? Is that an accurate representation? Is that there's this massively overinflated real estate market over there? I'll have to uh, I'll take the fifth on that one. Uh, I don't know. It sounds
0: right. I read a Wall Street Journal article that uh, was done by James McIntosh, which uh, was somewhat comprehensive on that same stat. But having not done the research myself, I could say it makes sense only because of what? Um, I saw how the high yield market in Canada developed, and this was, you know, I was involved in its development twenty over 20 <clears throat> and 25 years ago. Much like the current Chinese market, the Canadian high yield market started to develop with, uh, you know, your real estate uh, borrowers. Real estate's a leveraged business. People who are asset-based lenders tend to have confidence in the value of real estate. It is securing the, uh, in certain cases, securing the value of the bond. Uh, It was natural for China to develop that way, but I do not know. Sorry. I do not know whether it's as high as 70%. It certainly sounds logical. I heard that same number.
2: That same number, I, I read that somewhere. Um, I don't know if we read the same thing or not, Dan. But I actually saw the same number. Also, that just Evergrande by themselves are developing currently at this moment have one point four million properties that are partly finished. Right. That you know work stoppage on those, and those are two point, That's two point two billion dollars worth of developing work going on. And I, I Dan, smiling like, yeah, we probably yeah. The, the best. Got our so Greg, the same here's place. the thing.
1: Josh and I end up. So you listen to Preston with Jimmy Song.
2: I did. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We, you know, we, we, we yeah. didn't even
1: compare notes and we did. We picked the exact same thing. Yeah. Great episode, by the way. We'll plug it. Preston I love on. Absolutely. Up, he was on uh, Bitcoin fixes this with Jimmy you know, Song. We could. I think we could sit here and we could just spout
2: these numbers all day. But the bottom line is what we're trying to ask you, Greg, is how yeah. fucked is China right now? Yeah. Like, well, if, how much do you think this is going to bleed over to other developers? Yeah. How much is this going to affect this contagion? How contained or uncontained? Yeah just spitballing for us i know that yeah. this isn't uh we're not going to stick you to the wall no no no. no. Well, what here.
0: can i do i can only give you an educated guess it's nothing more than having spent a lot of time in these markets two things i will tell you these things always tend to be bigger than the uh the experts say at the outset so remember when uh even the fed went on record in 2007 there's nothing to be concerned about in the housing market in the U.S. Right. subprime market. Okay, that's a good one. Thanks for that real expertise advice. <laughs> the second one is, yeah. I mean, th- this is numbers that I'm running in my head. If 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 Evergrande has three hundred billion dollars of liabilities, only about a hundred billion of that is outstanding debt, and the other two hundred billion is unfinished properties to uh, people who have prepaid houses. So the people that are gonna be hurt the most are people that have bought a property, uh, put cash down and won't be delivered or potentially won't be delivered a a finished product, right? Um, So looking firstly at the fixed income impact of $90 billion just with Evergrande Uh, That number in itself isn't hugely concerning on a global basis, except when it starts to bleed over into other markets, including the bank debt market and banks like Standard Charter and HSBC, which have large exposure to Asia. So those would be the uh, secondary effects that I would look to where people are now questioning, okay, what's the quality of standard charters property development book and property development exposure. What's the quality of HSBCs, uh, uh, book. And you guys, when you understand that you only hold about four to 6% of equity capital against your entire loan book, it doesn't take a lot of property to developers, uh, Going uh, sideways or down in their credit quality to to uh, to get people concerned about the entire quality of the uh uh you know uh, of the entire loan book because you only hold four to six percent of capital against your entire book and that's where contagion really comes into play. It's not always the uh, actual or perceived risk, or sorry, the actual risk, it's the perceived risk, and it's the psychology. And Mm -hmm. as we all know, psychology changes quickly in both directions. When it's a bull market, everybody always asks, how much can I make? And then when it's a bear market, people always ask, how much can I lose, right? And right now, it's my feeling in the market that we're shifting from a bull market where everyone's saying, How much can I make? I'm missing out on all these gains. The people are like, geez, now uh, how much can I lose from this point? And that's all. That psychology is worth way more than a lot of mathematics at times because uh, when people start asking for their money back, that means taking leverage out of the system. And when that leverage is getting taken out of the system, that causes a lot of pain as assets uh, get repriced as people redeem. And they say, look, Josh, Dan, I know you're managing money for me. You've done a great job. You've made all these gains, but I want to crystallize these gains. And you're like, God darn it. That means I have to sell stuff. And if I have to sell stuff, I have to hit bids. It doesn't mean that they should be. Those are the bids, but those bids that I'm hitting, you might not be the only one that's selling, right? Everybody else is selling. So that's the cascade downwards that I, I frequently talk about. Um, I will just tell you, no one ever knows in foresight what causes the uh, meltdown. In hindsight, it becomes pretty obvious, but I'll ch- this, this playbook about, oh, we don't have to worry about Evergrande. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's well isolated. It's only China. We heard the same thing about uh, the U S housing market 14 years ago, and we know how that played out.
2: I just want to hit one more note on that really quick. The, um. So the Chinese don't seem like they have a whole lot of investment options. I mean, the CCP kind of keeps the money in China. We saw that with like the banning of Bitcoin miners. Uh-huh. They, I think that has a lot more to do with them trying to make sure that it's not an avenue to just easily move money out of the country. So the Chinese seem to have a propensity for real estate, and they have a lot of it in China. There's a ton yes. of and it, There was like a two-to-one ratio. People own second homes uh, more often than they own, own just a single home. It's, it's, and then you see all of these years and years of like these ghost towns being built because yes. they're just building concrete structures with no real reason just to build. Right. It's, it seems indicative of a systemic problem in real estate in China, just having seen all those anecdotal uh, pieces kind of coming together to, to produce what we're seeing now. And it makes sense for this to have to, for real estate to have been the problem that could set it off
1: there. Eerily similar. There's some eerie similarities to. Here's the neat thing. I would tell you. I would
0: tell you this conversation we're having right now is eerily different than the conversation we would have been having one week ago. Even okay. Oh it's, yeah. It's, it's 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 things like the VIX in the S and P trading above twenty five percent on an annualized basis. It's my opinion, based on my experience in markets, that. Capital markets do not function when equity vol exceeds 25%. Generally, high yield markets close, which means they continue to trade, but any new issuance from high yield issuers is not available because investors are more concerned with managing their redemptions and managing their current portfolio rather than adding something else into their portfolio Notwithstanding the fact that the price of that new thing that would be added into the portfolio, if right now the high yield index is 4% for a number, as ludicrous as that sounds, imagine if all of a sudden new issue has to start happening at 5 and 6%. It's actually new issues that reprice the secondary market of high yield and a lot of times, things stop until people can get their uh, their footing. High yield in China is absolutely shut right now uh, for a long time because at a fourteen percent yield, who's running to the market to fund at a fourteen uh, percent cost basis? I assure you, not a lot of people. And the U.S. market is at four percent. There's a ten percent difference between the relative high-yield markets in those two countries. My experience is that over time, the markets will revert to the mean, somewhere between an average between two of them. And as the high-yield market in North America reprices, equity markets get priced lower. Equity prices getting marked lower, you lose confidence, and it's just the reverse of a bull market. So I think I just said to you guys, I don't know if it was on, uh, on this prior to us being recorded, but remember this, I'll say it again, because it's this important in a bull market. Everybody asks, how much can I make? And in a bear market, everybody asks, how much can I lose? And it's my opinion that the markets are shifting from a bull mentality to potentially a more of a bear mentality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Zooming out a little bit and simplifying, I was kind of thinking about this last evening, and it did take me back to just the voice of Greg Foss talking about contagion. Because when you think about what we're looking at this week, Uh you're you're looking at one. I know it's a large company, huge company, but you're looking at one Chinese company potentially going insolvent, and we're hearing whispers across the globe about another financial crisis. And I think this is just indicative of where we're at in the debt cycle, how tremendously overleveraged things are. And I think one message probably you and the three of us would like to get across this evening is we don't know if this is going to be the match that lights the, the forest fire, but it at least gets your brain turning that events as singular and specific and located as this could have wide reaching global effects, not just in China, but unravel the whole system, which kind of goes back to the sticks and bubblegum backdrop we're in of economic fragility. So if you don't mind, let's go, let's, let's just for some of our audience that maybe doesn't understand why this conundrum exists or why contagion could spread, explain to us where we're at globally and why things are fragile to the extent where contagion could spread on a global scale from one company in China going insolvent.
0: Sure. It's a great question. <clears throat> Maybe we'll just uh, bring something that's near and dear to your guys' hearts. I, I hope this isn't taken the wrong way. So in a, in a natural business cycle, which is typically about a 10-year period you can you can look it up historically over a ten year period you will generally go through a period of growth, recession, and regrowth. Uh, the Fed has tried to essentially eliminate the natural business cycle uh, with their dual mandate of one full employment and two, which is uh, inflation and the interesting thing is, and Jeff Booth would bring this up because of evolution of technology, uh, being a downward pressure on inflation, the Fed has focused on their second mandate, which is uh, full employment. That is the equivalent of trying to manage a forest by not allowing forest fires to cleanse the forest. And I say that as firefighters that you know that the longer you delay the inevitable forest fire, the more severe that forest fire is going to be because there's so much undergrowth and, and stuff. That's what happens when you try to elongate the business cycle uh, past its natural uh, sustainable state. The reality is that markets are soft. The investors in markets have become soft. And they always run to the protection of the Fed to eliminate the natural cleansing of the forest fire. And the Fed has obliged. And that's really, really bad for capital markets because you have socialized, you have brought people to accept the socialization of capital losses to be borne by the Fed. This is the whole basis of creative destruction reinvigorating the capitalist, capitalist economy versus this managing of the business cycle. So contagion is a combination of two things. One, it's a combination of, or not a combination. One, it's a factor of confidence. But if you've had, if, if this new generation of investors, anyone who's under 35, who's investing in the markets right now, they've actually never experienced a true contagion event that's right. not that healthy
1: because yeah. unless, unless they've God. had bitcoin it's, well, such a well, simple, okay. but a, it's such a simple <laughs> but such an important point
0: but isn't it true right these are guys yeah. that have never experienced the i can just tell you in 2008 managing money in 2008 was truly a scary experience not because i thought i was gonna lose money for my clients we were actually quite well positioned that we were uh in a good spot, the reality was I thought that literally this whole system could break down. And the Fed has done everything in their power, arguably whether they should have or not, to eliminate another 2008 crisis for the last 13 years to the point where the underbrush in the forest is now ridiculously uh tender to a a uh, a flame or a spark right and this spark in a healthy environment of an Evergrande may not have caused a uh ignition but the reality is because we have not allowed the underbrush to clear uh this spark is much more susceptible to causing the contagion it's it's a, a, a perhaps a weak analogy but understand this that contagion is nothing more than psychology and if you've been taught for the last 13 years that the fed has your back and that everything that they're doing having your back is supposed to um hold on one guys sorry um everything that they're doing to have your back is because they have these tools but then all of a sudden the market says but they have no more tools Like these tools, they're exhausting their supply. The market at some point, in my opinion, is going to call the bluff of the Fed. And that's when you need your alternative assets that will protect your store of value in a market that we have never experienced before. Uh, Because why? Because cycles you saw the COVID and the response by the Fed, which The the spike in COVID and that spike in in you know that the loss in in confidence in in uh, markets reflected by increased yields and everything like that in risk assets it was pretty well contained and and those risk off periods have become shorter and shorter and shorter in time. The next one may be even shorter unless the market calls the bluff of the Fed and says, "But you got no more tools." So even though we think it should be shorter, we're saying that the picks and shovels to fight this fire are no longer big enough to fight this fire. And I don't know that's going to be the case, guys. And quite honestly, I'll tell you honestly, I don't want that to be the case. Right. I don't want it. I don't want the world to unravel. I have three kids. I I believe that capitalism is the best uh, avenue for success for entire populations. But if this is the death of capitalism as we know it, that's not what I want.
1: Right. Translation of what you just said for our audience, anybody that that went over their head, essentially what Greg just communicated, if you're familiar with the national park system, is that Smokey the Bear has announced that today's fire risk is very high and Evergrande is a completely out of control campfire.
0: It's not just out of control. It is a thunderstorm with no rain attached. It's a thunderstorm that's got electric... (laughs) Electricity, but no no rain to dampen the uh, the ground,
1: right? And the thing I think that scares me, Greg, is I think through this, not to fearmonger, because that's not the point of that. We don't want to. We're not do trying that. to monger. We're just having no. discussions, and yes. we're not. But mm-hmm. how many other canaries could there be in this coal mine? Because th- this is this is what this made me think yesterday. Like, here's one company in China that, as an American, I'm not, I'd never even heard of them until this incident. Right. I mean, there have to be a litany of other potential. Scenarios or or insolvencies that could happen at any given time. One in of the them future, happened right? yesterday.
0: That was the precursor to uh, you know, even though the Chinese markets were closed for a holiday yesterday, there was uh, trading on uh, one of the exchanges of a Hong Kong property developer whose equity fell like over ninety percent in one day and had to be halted. And that's nothing more than contagion within the same industry, the property development industry. Uh, in the United States, the hedging ability of the, when I say the hedging ability, the the desire of hedge funds to reach outside of their own uh, uh, exposure and try and Texas hedge themselves with another property developer would have ensured that a Chinese Developer who was still maintaining its value versus Evergrande on the equity side, it would have been orderly marched down as the hedge short as the hedge fund shorted the other stock as a hedge against their Evergrande exposure. It appears to me that this thing flew below the radar uh, for a while, and then people just decided on Monday that was the the one that they were going to to bring down. Again, that is that is a. Uh, um, sorry guys. Somebody it's telemarketing. I'm sure uh, the that is a risk within the uh, specific industry. It gets bigger when the high yield market as a whole gets hit, and then it flows up to investment grade. Then it flows up to bank debt. Then it flows outside of Asia to European central or European bank exposure. Then it flows over to America, and this is the things that we're worried about. Because imagine the the most orderly markets in the world always are the United States markets. And when Europeans and Asians uh, cross the the ocean to start hedging in the the United States markets, meaning shorting United States equities or other financial assets in the U.S. to hedge their risks overseas – that's when contagion will just spread because of natural uh, more sellers than buyers. Then that's the danger.
2: When you said that um, when, when the market calls the Fed's bluff, when, so can you describe or kind of detail how you see that playing out? Like, how, is it when they start QE and that just doesn't seem to pump the, yes. pump anything back? But I don't and know. It just keeps spiraling.
0: Josh, I wish I, I can only tell you that I've never experienced it because so far the market has never called the feds bluff. But right. trust me when I tell you that more people are questioning whether we should continue this stupidity. There's certainly at some point people just say enough. Yeah. You've tried, to, you've, you've tried to solve this many crises so far and all you've done is kick the can further down the road and the next crisis will be bigger than the last crisis. Some people may just say, that's it, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely out and I'm taking my ball and I'm taking my baseball bat and I'm going home. And that's when things really start to, 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 to cascade because remember, you need 25 players for every risk, uh, risk guy. That's, that's the leverage in the financial system 25 times. The system is levered to the real risk guy. If the risk guy is the guy with the baseball bat and says, that's it, I'm going home, there's 25 other guys that just have to say, well, I'm sorry, my risk guy left, so I have to get out of the market too. Yeah,
1: I think I want to take this opportunity to to define just as simple as I possibly can for some Uh of our audience that doesn't understand how this fractionally reserved system, especially on a fiat currency, works. Because I think some people, you know, we the three of us are throwing these out and they're like, what does this even mean? And I heard Preston and Jimmy doing this on that podcast we referenced. I think it's a good exercise. So basically, to, to walk this through if you're confused, if I lend Greg, if I commit, let's say, a hundred bucks to you, Greg, right, you're gonna list that as an asset. I'm gonna list it as a liability, right? But now the reverse, the reverse. Sorry, you're no, going to list com- it. Yeah, Correct. you're going
0: to reverse yeah. it as an asset. I'm going to list it as no, I'm sorry. a. Sorry.
1: So if I commit to pay you 100 bucks, it's my okay, liability. Right. It's yep, your yep. asset, right? Yeah. But now you can take that. This is just a massive oversimplification. But then you can take that asset. You can make another commitment with another Correct. counterparty. Now Correct. that's a liability for you, an asset for them, and this snowball can keep rolling downhill. So when we when we use these words like twenty five x, you know, every dollar is lent out this many times. This is where this domino cascade can, uh, contagion can can take part because right. each new dollar can just get lent out over and over and over yes. again and, and appear on tons of different balance sheets. The
0: best way to, to Dan, the best way to think of it is you only have four cents of every dollar that you make in a loan. Your bank is only holding four cents of equity. And the other 96 cents is depositor's money, which is not your money, or interbank deposits or subordinate debt. That means that if your loan that you've loaned out at 100 cents on the dollar falls below 96 cents on the dollar, you vaporized your entire risk-absorbing capital, and you are now insolvent as a financial institution. Right. That is not a great situation to be in. No, but that's how banking works.
2: When you think about that scenario, again, to simplify this for people listening, the reason everyone gets cold, you know, cold feet and wants to run is because nobody three layers down deep in that system knows who they're really exposed to because this, or, this exposure or, has gone so deep.
0: Josh, or they say, I'm a depositor in the bank and I believe that my federal reserve central bank will bail me out if that bank has been too stupid to make proper loans and so far the fed has always bailed the system out which is sometimes it was warranted and other times it was purely crony capitalism that bailed out stupid risk managers and just pushed the 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 ball down the street or or kicked the ball further down the street And most importantly, transferred the risk of the financial system onto the balance sheet of the Fed so that we will never recover from this uh, ever-expanding snowball, as Dan said. So, look, that's the way banking works. Banking only needs four to six cents on every dollar of risk-absorbing capital. The risk is depositors' money. And people would say, well, who would be stupid enough to deposit money in a bank that only has four to six cents of risk-absorbing capital? And the answer is, everybody thinks that the banks are too big to fail and the Fed will bail them out. And with the exception of Lehman Brothers, they've been right.
1: Tell me if this is a- accurate, Greg. So when when you talk about that, and we'll link your Bitcoin Magazine article again, because okay. it's so good. Um, And and one of the main theses in that is just this risk transfer to sovereign nation states, basically from the private sector, right? So when we talk about that risk transfer, what comes to my mind first is that, is just how dissimilar this environment is, say, to the late 70s. Like We don't have the same spin move that we had, or that Volcker had, because, and I, I sent a tweet out earlier in the week, I said, uh, in 1980, U.S. debt to GDP less than 40%. Today, it's 100%, 110% and climbing. Fed yeah. has nowhere near the wiggle room Volcker did. A meaningful rate increase equals sovereign debt crisis, which essentially right. equates to, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, a, in no meaningful sense can they genuinely raise rates because no, no, no. it's going to be sovereign default. First, like, of,
0: first of all, it's not just 110%. Do you have to put non-financial debt on top of that, and that's 300% of GDP. Okay. So we're essentially at
2: 400%. When you say that, you're talking about unfunded liabilities like Social Security. No, no, no. This is
0: just pure debt. This does not even include the unfunded. This is uh, corporate debt. This Remember, is total debt. Yeah. This yeah. is total corporate yeah. debt, oh, okay. um, municipal it's, debt, okay. state debt. And the reason right. that right. I include that, Josh, is because interest expense is tax deductible. So you can't. If you're the taxation, so remember what GDP is. GDP is a proxy for what your tax base is. Well, if you continue to add to debt, by adding to debt, you are reducing your or, or negating your tax burden because interest expense is tax deductible. So you have to look at total global debt, not just federal US debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or not just US debt, but even not just US government debt. You've got to look at all the cumulative debts relative to the GDP. And that's why I say, again, only math. We have reached a point where escape velocity is impossible to achieve due to the acceleration of the debt spiral just by pure math, by the interest burden on this 400% of GDP or four times the size of your tax base. Your tax base needs to grow four times as fast as Your interest expense. That means your economy needs to grow four times as fast as your interest expense. What if your interest expense is a low number like 3%, which is a typical coupon that would be on government and state and municipal and uh, uh, corporate debt at this point? A 3%. That means your economy needs to grow at 12% just to keep pace? Guys, is that going to happen? No. There's no way that's going to happen. That means the debt spiral is assured. That means the fiat debasement needs to increase because they need to fill the gap between the debt spiral and their ability to support the economy. Hence, you need to hold hard assets that will need not be debased by the fiat Ponzi. Very simple.
2: <clears throat> in, your, uh, in your opinion, when this situation does unfold and we see this decoupling, which would be yeah. You know, the QE just not having the effect. Right. Um, in my mind, I would expect hard assets to absolutely just blast off in value, including mm-hmm. Bitcoin and you know, gold don't know. So it I just don't commodities know in general.
0: Don't forget that the first knee-jerk reaction is to yeah. sell anything because right. you need to raise capital to return that to your unit holders. Right, so human right. but- nature, again, we talked about that is to sell your winners. What are some of your winners? Well, it could be hard assets up until this point. Over time, Josh, I will tell you, I have no playbook. I don't know how this unfolds. I've never seen it before. And I'm not actually looking forward to experiencing this happening.
2: Right. But what I'm saying, though, I- is that in the scenario where people lose faith in like the sovereign currency, yeah. they're not going to yeah. be rushing to safety in that currency, hundred percent oh, they won't, although that's the kind US, of what I'm getting
0: at well, the u s. will be the last fiat to fail. And all these other failing currencies, people will intrinsically rush to the u s. dollar, which makes their situation even worse because a strong u s. dollar will uh, hurt all other emerging market economies. You know how that works. And it's just again, this is you call it contagion. We might as well call it a acceleration. Of a loss of confidence because it's like whack a mole. You know, you're running to the safety of the US dollar, but by running to the safety of the US dollar, you are making your domestic economy worse. Yet that's what people do. So I wish I had a playbook for you. I'm not, again, I hope we can avoid this scenario, but every single time it gets quicker and it seems more severe. Two thousand and seven, eight, and two thousand and nine took three years to unfold. COVID took about three months, and Evergrande may take less, and that's yeah. a scary thing.
1: Right. One yeah. thing, Josh and I toss this around a lot when we dialogue, and I think we both agree that I believe one thing: Bitcoin still needs to prove on its. Long road upward is that it yeah. can become decoupled from broader capital markets. 100%. And I, I I'm I'm smelling what you're stepping in, Greg, just a second ago, because to play the short midterm bearish scenario on Bitcoin, let's say this Evergrand is the spark that starts the forest fire. You're gonna have yeah. a massive credit crunch. People are gonna need fiat yeah. to make good on their impairment and all their areas of risk. Yeah. Bitcoin yeah. is hyper-liquid. It's going to be, like you said, people are going to sell their winners. They're going to do anything they can to get yeah. some cash to to mitigate uh-huh. risk. So short-term, be ready for all scenarios, Bitcoin both yeah. up and down. You could see something like the COVID liquidity shock. And, oh, uh, I think, and some, I some think major- it's almost a
0: certainty right now, only because we're only 12 years old. My biggest hope is that we develop a parallel system in the absence of any... Uh, Uh, critical shock, if you will, or death blow, so that people will understand over time that this is actually insurance. It's the equivalent of owning volatility, of being long volatility, where the world is short volatility in all other assets. Bitcoin is actually a hedge. It's long vol. It's the equivalent of being short credit. So when you're short credit, you are long vol. Bitcoin is a long vol trade. In my opinion, but that's because I've studied it for five years and most of the world doesn't believe anything that Foss says, let alone that it's a long vol trade. So it'll take time for the market in my opinion to uh, <clears throat> increase their knowledge somewhere to the extent that maybe I'm right. Um, the reason I know I'm right is because I've traded credit for thirty years and most other people in this world have not ever traded not. credit for thirty days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, one of my buddies that works in finance, Greg, has said to me verbatim: "Once Bitcoin becomes decoupled from broader capital markets, I'll start paying attention." Do you? What do you think about that statement? Do you think it's still like? I know the. I love, I right love him, except
0: that he's conflicted. By the same token, I would say to him: uh, "Once your job has evaporated because you're in a fiat Ponzi." the fuck are you going to do, right? Like, dude, (laughs) stop being so stupid because you need insurance. Don't try and buy insurance when your house is on fire. You need to buy it before your house is on on fire. And
1: when we talk about hyper Bitcoin, if you've been in Bitcoin for more than six months, well, even if you have been involved in the last six months, some of these price moves are just jaw dropping. And Mm -hmm. so you think to yourself, you know, you're looking back on four-year-old charts, like, oh, I'll be able to get in here, there, or the other place. Yeah. It's like if it becomes decoupled, when it becomes decoupled, we could be in a move upward that makes Mount Everest look shy. It could be. I mean, look,
0: there's both scenarios. I'm just the best thing I can do is tell you my price target on Bitcoin is over two million dollars of Bitcoin. If you are worried today of five thousand dollar moves in Bitcoin. I don't need to talk to you. You're too stupid for me to talk to because (laughs) $5,000 in a $2 $2 million context is is not even an order of magnitude, right? Like it's just, you guys need to understand that this is the most beautiful asset ever invented by man to store value over time and space. And I'm not smart enough to tell you whether it's Worth 40,000 US or 20,000 US or 50,000 US. I'm just telling you, if someday it goes to 2 million US, you've been overthinking this from the perspective of purchasing your insurance when you're supposed to purchase your insurance, i.e., when it is cheap. And right now, it is excessively cheap, in my opinion.
2: If you're out there listening to this right now and you're having trouble understanding a lot, I mean, because Greg is an incredibly intelligent individual. He's. (laughs) He's light years beyond Dan and I. Half the stuff, I mean, we're trying to catch up. So, I think really what the bottom line is is if you're at least curious about Bitcoin, if you're Bitcoin curious right now, be ready to purchase some Bitcoin because this is going to be a great opportunity, I think, to to get yourself a position because there's a great chance you could see a massive sell-off. I mean, we might we've already seen a ten to fifteen percent move, but
0: yeah. It doesn't matter, though Josh. To right? Sorry to jump on you. It doesn't matter whether there is a sell off or not. If you own zero Bitcoin right now, you're taking a massive risk versus an appropriate allocation in your portfolio. And I, I, don't, need, I don't need to run through the math of where it could go. I'll just tell you this as simply as I can. Thank you for the kind comment on how intelligent, I'm not smart, okay? Like I went to school in engineering with rocket scientists, guys like Micah Saylor, who are truly smart. The thing that I can do is distill a problem down, I think into fairly simple language, which means when you're supposed to buy something and when you're supposed to sell something. And right now, by all the calculations I do, Bitcoin should be worth at least over $150,000 of Bitcoin today in the absence of something like Evergrande happening. And as soon as Evergrande happens, Bitcoin intrinsic value goes higher, not lower. Right. So right now it's trading yep. at its, you know, one third of its intrinsic value before anything bad happens. And if these Evergrande uh, scenarios unfold like we were worried they will, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin goes way higher. And if the price in the open market where fools are trading it, where fucking morons who think they can time a chart and do all this stuff are going to give you this thing for even a bigger discount to its intrinsic value, you just close your eyes. You put it away. You don't mark to market. You do it in your head, but you don't worry about it. You put it in a safe or you put it in an IRA. RRA and we'll talk in 20 years and i really hope the world still exists in 20 years
1: cuz there's a chance it won't <laughs> you going jeff booth you've been around jeff too much
0: <laughs> no that, we that don't could, want this to like happen dan and oh, i were, we're buying emo
1: it's a it's a game buying of ammo.
0: probabilities boys it's a game of probabilities and <laughs> as much as i don't want it to happen i cannot tell you that there's a zero probability that it you know there's a zero probability that it'll happen, okay? There's not a zero probability. There's a greater than zero probability the world unravels. This is a horrible thing. with For a guy with three kids, I don't want to leave that world to my kids. Dang, I want it to be a solution. And this is why Bitcoin offers the solution. So Evergrande could be the butterfly wings that causes the hurricane in some other part of the world. And I'm really hoping it is not. But if it is, I wouldn't be surprised because I've seen it happen before. And you have all these experts that say it's contained. The, the subprime mortgage crisis in the USA is, is contained. My God, if you could take those words and learn from them, you better do it right now because the same thing is happening in China.
1: Right. And at the end of the day, what happened with Lehman, what's going on with Evergrande, whatever, whatever the future trajectory is, it at least gives you a theoretical, rational blueprint of how things could unwind Yes, that enables you to be prepared for all future scenarios. Except it'll
0: happen quicker now. Because yeah, before yeah. it took three years, and then COVID took three months, and this one could happen, I hate to say it, could happen in three weeks. I don't want it to but that's how cycles get compressed. When the forest fire is as dr- oh, sorry, when the forest is as dry as it is right now, and it hasn't cleared the underbrush for as long as it hasn't, those forest fires explode into massive uh, bombs or fire bombs a lot quicker. The cycle is compressed. Yeah. I'm not a fearmonger.
1: Yeah, I love what you said too. That that's a message we try to impart to the audiences stop worrying so much about short-term price. Like when it comes to Bitcoin, if your boots are touching the ground, get on the fucking saddle, get on that horse before it leaves the barn because you're not going to care whether the price was 23 grand or 43 grand and 10 I years from now. promise you,
0: right? Dan, listen, I promise you that if you only put 5% of your portfolio in Bitcoin and you're looking at that 5% every single second, like you should not be doing, but let's just say you're human and you're going to, don't forget what your other 95% of your portfolio is doing that you're totally comfortable with losing this much in equities because I've lost that much in equities before. Guys, this means that equity markets could actually implode and not be that final risk asset that the Fed is counting on to skate all pension funds on site. We've talked to you before about how much your Pension manager has in bonds, right, guys? Yeah. That's ridiculous. 35%. Ridiculous as Insane. you guys go as first responders where your pension mandate restricts you from owning anything less than X percent in bonds. I would take that up to the Supreme Court and go, yeah. you know, this is unfair to my kids that you guys have said that we need to own this much in bonds. We,
1: lo- we lose sleep over it, Greg, legitimately.
0: I'm sorry about that because sleep is a valuable commodity, but this is designed by people who have never sat in a risk chair in their life. In fact, they sit in academic chairs that try to mitigate risks without ever having sat in a risk chair. This is absolute, absolute. The biggest problem with academia in the US is all these experts have never actually sat in a chair and managed risk anytime in their life.
2: Yeah, the entire book "Skin in the Game." I hate to bring Taleb up because he's such a douchebag, but his <laughs> books are his books are phenomenal, and his his book "Skin in the Game" is alludes to that exact same thing throughout the entire book, just about okay. how academics haven't actually sat in that chair to actually make those decisions and have to stick to right. them. Right? I don't think Taleb actually
0: them. has either. No, uh, you know, just hasn't. not calling out. It, it's it's all good. He's <laughs> a um, He's an interesting character. Uh, Look, having sat in a chair in 2008, 2009, uh, I will tell you that I could have picked up a grape with my arsehole so easily because my sphincter was so tight every single day I went to work, right? Because this is the way that you actually experience uh, real-life calamities, right? It's not funny. It's not funny at all. But it is when the world's unraveling, I don't care how good an academic you are. If people are redeeming your fund and you need to raise money, you just hit any bid you can. And by the way, there's not that many bids out there. You're limited to what you can do to return capital to your unit holders. It's not fun, guys. Your stomach is doing backflips. You're breathing like, you know, you've just run a marathon and this is a job. Well, yes, it is.
1: Wow. Greg, we, uh, we're going to wrap this up. I'm going to end with this question for you. Uh, you've, you, you've been, and we alluded to it at the top. You've been on tons of shows recently. Uh-huh. You've been in high demand. Um, in the last couple months since we interacted with you, what conversation or person you've spent time with stands out to you the most, um, in your recent Bitcoin interactions?
0: Uh, this sounds like it's contrived, uh, but I will tell you the truth. Um, honest to God, Canada is so lucky to have a guy like Jeff Booth, um, in, in, in our, uh, in our camp. Uh, and he's not just from Can. He's not just fighting for Canada. He's fighting for everyone. Uh, people have called him out as being non, uh, you know, disingenuous man. I, I, I totally have issue with that. The guy is is as, as, uh, honest as the day is long. And I never would have met him if it wasn't for, um, Uh, our common uh, interest in Bitcoin for our children. But here's the interesting thing I'll say guys is I read Jeff Booth's book after I wrote my own paper on risk in the financial markets. Uh, And I, I sourced all my information by myself because guys, you know, economists don't generally, um, um, Uh, publish these numbers because they're not great numbers. If you're an economist at at, at Merrill Lynch or Bank of America, you don't want to be publishing these numbers that I sourced, right? Because it paints a pretty ugly picture. Wasn't it amazing that Jeff Booth's book basically sourced the same numbers that I used from the Institute of International Finance and Mm -hmm. drew the same conclusions that I drew, independent of one another. Now, he's way, way, way smarter than I am from a business perspective, but I think I have a little bit more experience than he has from a trading perspective. And that's what makes us a good team. Because again, once the world unravels, no mathematical models apply, right? There's no, oh, the net present value of these cash flows over a period of this many years means this should be worth this. You're sitting there and you have to raise capital. You're hitting whatever bid is in the market right now Because your unit holder said in T plus two, I want my money back. I don't have to wait for a net present value uh, model to come to fruition. So Jeff Booth is the guy that, uh, that has given me the most confidence that, that independently we came up with the same conclusion using similar information with different experience sets. Okay. A trader versus a business manager, risk, uh, taker on a longer term versus a shorter term guy like me. And then to answer your question on a, on a global basis, I've never met so many smart young people, including yourselves in this market that truly want to do something good for the benefit of our kids. Um, I'm 58 years old. Uh, I've worked hard. I probably have enough stuff saved up that my kids are going to be okay. Uh but that doesn't mean the rest of the world's in the same spot. In fact, I know they're not and that doesn't make me happy. I know Jeff Booth might be in a similar position as I am right now. That doesn't make him happy either. He's not in this any longer for the financial gain. He's in this to make the world a better place. Uh mm-hmm. there are tons of other people like that. Uh this young kid, I'll call him out. I get shit from the Bitcoin Maxis, this guy, Jason Lowry, who's the US Space Force guy at MIT. I was having dinner with him in Boston, uh, probably about a month ago now. Honest to God, I have all the time in the world for young men and women like him who are uh, pushing the boundaries of thought that exceed those idiots like Steve Hankey, who sits in this Chair at John, Johns Hopkins and spews thirty-year-old drivel that will do nothing but make our situation worse. So I'm I'm a buyer of the young kids. I'm an absolute seller of the stupid Johns Hopkins-funded endowed chair of the Steve Hankies of the world who are so uh, conflicted and so bought off. I'm going to say it. They're bought. They're bought off. by the system? Uh, and that includes Charlie Munger and uh, Warren Buffett. I'm afraid you guys have, you know, your time is up, you fucking old losers, okay? Uh, You know what? You don't understand that it's our kids and your conflicted investment policies that have caused our kids a tremendous amount of uh, uh, their future because we're pulling forward. We're a selfish generation that are pulling forward the benefits that should accrue to our children, but we're pulling them forward because we're too soft to actually take the pain in the present. So, Long answer. Thanks for asking that question. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble. I get, a, I get hate mail on a regular basis. I'm good with it. You know what? I've lived, I've lived in a chair that has managed risk when the world is unraveling, and it ain't fun, and I don't want to do it again. But I promise you, every single politician is pushing us exactly to that situation right now.
2: Greg, I got one last question for you really quick. How many beaver pelts do you think one Bitcoin is going to be worth in 2025?
0: Wow. You know, um, <laughs> I don't even know what that goes for, but I do know the context in which you're asking that. I'll tell you this. Th- th- you know that Wampum, which was the uh, yeah. indigenous Canadian. We've
1: talked about Wampum on, yeah, this, okay. on our first it episode. It had yeah. value
0: and it had value because other people uh, understood the the uh, work that went into creating that uh, particular uh it was jewelry to an extent. It was a war, uh, an award for warriors and all that stuff. Uh, Beaver pelts, a little bit different. <laughs> I, I, I chuckle at your question. All I know is it doesn't matter because if the US fails, the world fails. And as a proud Canadian, I can only say Canada doesn't matter. We're a rounding error. Yeah, we have a stupid prime minister, but it really doesn't matter because <laughs> the only thing that really matters is the United States. It's the strongest and most uh, profitable and uh, most financially integrated market in the entire world. And we need to hope that the U.S. doesn't fumble the ball on the one yard line. The U.S. has the chance to incorporate this Bitcoin gift that China has given up. They've given this up on a platter and the U.S. has a chance to take this from China and say, thank you very much, you bunch of knuckleheads. You had this beautiful technology and now you can, uh, the US can take this from you. Man, oh man, the only thing I can hope is that the US takes that chance for our children. And there's There's a parallel system that develops where you have the US fiat currency as your checking account and you have Bitcoin store of value Dominated by USA based Bitcoin miners as your savings account and our child's future. You know what? Yeah. I see a future where that can coexist and people in free markets will uh, be rewarded.
1: I know the three of us share the same hope, which is that Bitcoin can be a ladder to get us off this super steep roof.
0: There's not other, I don't know one other solution. I I, I hate to say it. I don't know another solution that will allow that. Silver and gold, do I own some? Yes, I do. Do I believe that they can do it? No, because for the last 5,000 years, they have continued to allow things to fail. Bitcoin is 12 years old. In another twelve years, I hope you guys are around and still inviting me onto this podcast. And I'm going to be saying, "Remember in 2021 when you know we were worried that Bitcoin was correlated to risk assets, but now it's this beautiful insurance policy." I really hope that we are available to have that podcast in twelve years.
1: Agree. You too. You're here, love here. To. Greg. We uh, enjoy every single minute with you. Thanks for giving us some time this week.
0: Thanks for everything you guys do as well. You guys, um, educating is a, uh, a pleasure of mine, but uh, I'm not a smart guy. I've just sat in the trenches for 30 years. I, I believe I understand how things happen. And most of the world really has no appreciation for how things really do unfold. It isn't pretty but it is a fact. So thanks for having me. I look forward to our next chance to talk. All right. Likewise. We do too. Thank you, good, Greg. Good stuff, guys. Happy Thursday. Or Wednesday. Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. All right. Good night, boys. there. care. Yeah.
1: Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. And our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.